0: Everything is a system. And I started looking at the way I would design approaches to dealing with national challenges from a systems approach. Courage for me is to do things in the face of fear. It's not that I'm not afraid, but it's that I, I have the courage to do it even though I'm afraid.
1: Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's mad scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanispert of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center within Army Futures Command. And I'm joined by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Claire Nelson. Dr. Nelson is the founder and chief ideation leader of the Futures Forum, a thought leadership practice which promotes and conducts strategic foresight and integral development consulting with a particular interest in global challenges. She is also ideation leader and president of the Board for Caribbean Development Foresight Institute, a think-do tank based in the Caribbean. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. So, Dr. Nelson, thank you for coming on the show today.
0: Thank you for having me. I like to say that one of my reasons for being here is with a type like mad scientist. I thought, wow, (laughs) I'm among friends. (laughs) This is my tribe.
1: (laughs) So tell us a little bit about your background, because you have such a, a great backstory and a wide range of experiences a futurist, an engineer, a strategic thinker, an innovator, and an activist. So how did you get here and what's driven your passion for change?
0: Well, um, you know, as you say, I'm a Jamaican, so I tend to do a lot of things. Certainly, I think my model for life was my mother. I grew up with a very enterprising mother. She was a teacher and she was certainly a leader in community. And I grew up in a time in Jamaica when there was a lot of social change. And so at my high school for girls, I was in what they call the Latin girls' class. And the Latin girls' class were the girls who did math, physics, and chemistry. And they were drummed into our heads from 11, 12, that we were going to be the leaders of Jamaica. And we're going to take Jamaica into this greatness. And Jamaica was going to be a leader of the new economic world order. And so I drank the Kool-Aid fully. I had to listen to my mother and not become an actor or a theater person So engineer was my next best choice, but I got into futures as a development specialist uh, working at the inter american Development Bank, recognizing that we're giving countries loans for 30 years, but we're using past history planning. And I started thinking about the fact that the shape of the future and the shape of the solution was always emerging and that our planning protocols didn't allow us to do the kind of problem solving that brought us closer to the best possible solution. Because we're so, you know, siloed in our approach, we're so like mechanical in our approach. And those problems or challenges got me to think about how might we look at the future differently. And up popped this whole world of thing called future studies. And in terms of my activism, I think, as I said, growing up in Jamaica, I always was with a mother who was always trying to change things. She was a girls' Scout leader, so she always started the first things at church, she was a church elder, she always started the first thing, and she always asked the question, well, why couldn't it be done? She was never the one to say, it has always been done this way, therefore. And so it, that personality, I think, was inborn in me, and so I've always been one, even since I was a child to challenge authority and my mother kind of taught me that of course the only authority I couldn't challenge was her so I learned very quickly that I can challenge anybody's authority except her so I think that's kind of what made me this 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 person that I am now
1: well it sounds like your mother would have fit right in a mad scientist as well (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about that approach you mentioned. Can you explain to our audience some about how your system of systems approach to foresight looks and works?
0: Well, um, I like to remind people most of my work has been done in the area of global sustainability or at least national sustainability, working um, as I do on countries in Latin America, in Caribbean. And, you know, I worked on different topics from energy to airport transportation to justice systems. So as a technical cooperation person, I was always looking at the challenges from whatever. So I started saying, well, I'm an engineer. I'm not trained to do any of these things. So I began to realize that I could use the tools of industrial engineering, which is what I've studied, um, to look at things as systems. So everything is a system. It's a justice system, it's an airport transportation system, it's the environmental system. And I started looking at the way how we design the portfolios or design the approaches to dealing with the national challenges from a systems approach. And of course, I got into this well, wait a minute, you can't do A without B, or you can't do B without C, but of course, most of the tools we're taught is like you break it down to the sum of the parts or the parts and then you add the parts back up. Clearly, our life is more than the sum of the parts. And so in recent times, I recognize we really can't, and I mean, from a long time, because even when I was doing my doctorate, I realized that there was no one single methodology or tool you could use to look at a system. You have to pick the right tool for the problem you're trying to solve. But more recently, I would say in the last year or two, I've been really toying with this notion of smart and what smart cities, smart nations, smart islands. And I can't this really thing I'm calling the smart futures lens. And it's really saying, because we have to look at the design of the, the systems we're trying to impact is the education system, is the healthcare system, it's the transportation system, and we're on this techno-utopia frenzy. Oh, internet of things, we're going to have cars that can self-drive. Okay, not so fast, buddy. Let's hold up there. What's going to happen if something, like, blacks out? Who is at fault? Where is the insurance system? Does the court system know how to deal with this kind of challenge? Who is going to fix it? I mean, so there's all other all things that have to be in play before we get into the exciting, dick Tracy moment of, you know, having cars that self-drive. You know, all of us who have been living a certain time have seen this fantasy move from a comic strip to almost a near reality. And so and so, the Smart Futures approach says, first of all, let us look at the future from the point of view of, um, the story we're telling ourselves because it's it's very challenging to try and break it down into a mathematical model, right? We want a model. And of course there's system dynamics theories and all kinds of they say tools that people have come up with the futures real impact assessment systems. But our brains cannot really, I would say, hold 20 opposing forces in mind as mathematical equations. It's much more easy for us to hold this in mind if we think of it as a story. We can hold complex pieces of a story together, right? That's why movies are interesting. You know, we can watch the spine novels with six things at the same time. And writers are always very good at having this chapter today, this time in this place, this time in that place. And you're piecing together all five elements of the characters at the same time. So if we think of the system as, say, you know, the healthcare system, you have the medical people, you have the lab people, you have the insurance people, you have the patients, you have the policy people. All of the stories of these elements of the system have to come together. So what we want to do is make sure it's sustainable. In other words, it, it's not going to create a problem, a second and third order impact over time that's going to be deleterious to our health or our our the system that we're trying to affect. We also look at the meaningful metrics. smart is meaningful metrics. What is it really important to measure? Is it important to measure how much dollars are saved? And is the only thing we should be concerned with? Or is it how many lives are saved? So we deal with issues. In this case, you can deal with issues. How do we deal with orphan drugs or rare diseases that only a few people have? How do we make it more accessible for people who are, say, not wealthy, to pay for these very unusual costs. We deal with agility and adaptability, recognizing that every agent in the system has its own way of working. So the insurance has its own language. Insurance system has its own language. The doctors have their own language. And yes, you have these codes, but sometimes the codes that the insurance system have don't match with the language of what the doctors need to actually heal and treat their patients, right? Then we talk about are and smart being robust resilience. How do we build in for risk? How do we build in um, the, the, the the system such that if something goes wrong, we can rapidly rebuild and Here we are in the middle of a global crisis, and yes, there are a few people have thought about it. certainly futures have been talking about it. In fact, many health and global topics talk about we need to be sure that we can deal with a global pandemic and so here we are still trying to learn our way through. We're very much in an experimental state of being as a human family, right? And finally, T is a transformative use of technology in smart. And we see this idea of contact tracing has raised new, let's say, eyebrows, new alarms about Well, what if it goes too far? And then contact tracing is used by government to track dissidents. Let's look at what's happening in Hong Kong. What might we learn from what is happening in Hong Kong during the COVID crisis? The crackdown, the arrest of people. Let's look at what could go wrong if technology is misused. And let us look at making sure that the technology's transformation is not a negative one, but is indeed one that accrues to a greater sense of well-being and thriving for what should be the central point of all of what we do is human thrival. You have to kind of tell the story of what it is that we want or what it is that we fear. What options are desirable, what options in the scenario are desirable. So our scenario planning will have to, yes, we still would do our planning, scenario planning the way we do it, we still would have maybe some quantitative Methods, if we're talking about something like an oil spill, for example, you want to do some quantitative things in there, but there's not one particular methodology or model. What is the same is the framework, the lens in which we view the world has to be what I call from a smart systems perspective.
1: There were a lot of great insights in that. um, And we could spend hours talking about any one of them. But what kind of blew me away was your reference to the storytelling part of it. You know, you took what was essentially a systems engineering problem, and you translated it into a way to tell a story, breaking the parts down into characters, because we try to use the power of storytelling at mad Scientist all the time to take complex ideas and communicate them to an audience and have them have some kind of emotional investment in that. So I think that was a, a really, really cool way to talk about that. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing right now in regards to space?
0: Yes, that um, I, I am co founder or convener, founding convener, I would say, of the Caribbean Space Society, which actually is um, just a uh, holding place for my larger ambitions, which is to create a global space, space futures alliance. And I came to this realization when I was working. On what I call my coming out journal. I was guest editor for World Futures um, Review, of which I'm now full I'm now on the advisory board. And my journal was about the year 2030 agenda. And I was looking at this how we share the future construct and how we share the rule book. And I started thinking wait a minute, they left out space. How could we leave our space? This is the next big thing. So they're thinking about what is and not what is the future. Now, it has turned out that the UN itself and Outer Space Affairs Office now has a whole conversation about how can space support sustainable development goals. And the fact is, really... All of the things we're doing now, the fact we're able to even be speaking on this phone right now, on this internet right now, the fact that we have not gone into total mental decay or mental decline during this quarantine of humanity is that because we have the internet. So trade has not come to a crippling halt. Business has not come to a crippling halt. And our health and well-being have not come to a crippling halt because we have the internet. Can you imagine for all those people who live alone, if they did not have access to a phone or internet, they would go stack here and river man. We're social creatures. So this idea of space futures is about making sure we don't make the same mistakes we did in the last 500 years of human civilization and the conquest of the Americas. And so when we look at space to come back to space, the whole idea of pushing the agenda of a space futures alliance focused on just access to space, just equity, focused on ensuring that we have space to support the sustainable development goals, that small countries, developing countries have access to technologies that allow us to do climate change monitoring and weather forecasting and disaster management, the search and rescue operations we can do if people are lost at sea, the whole issue of fishing rights, you know, many of the small island nations in the pacific especially you know do and not benefiting from the economic exclusive zones of the sea because they don't have the capacity to monitor the sea so lots of let's say seafood piracy happens and we have in the caribbean region we have this red algae the algal blooms that are happening in the caribbean which from states we can monitor these things and get a better handle of these problems so food security water security are critical reasons why space based technology has to be understood by more people We have to understand and and take control of the data that we can get from space to ensure that development happens, or at least sustainable development is done with a better, let's say, outcome than currently could happen because people are not aware. We don't have the policymakers. We don't have the, 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 the technical leaders in these countries. And so I'm very much pushing for an acceleration, if you will. Of the awareness of the critical importance of space and the fact that actually space is humanity's common heritage and that's a big legal issue i know because they're saying space is not a commons i'm like really well what part of the sky are you seeing i thought the earth was always revolving so yes we might have carved out different you know we have carved out different let's say orbits for different countries but even some countries don't even understand that law, that, that they have the rights of certain spectrum in space. So we have a lot of work to ensure we have just equity to space, to ensure that everyone has the right to the light of the moon.
1: I think the best way to put it is there are a lot of legal and ethical questions. And policy questions about space at this point. I think it's a very gray area, and I don't think there's a definitive answer.
0: Exactly. That's a complex system of systems. So the question has to be focused on what is it that we want? I mean, there's a big rush to talk about, okay, you know, humanity might have outlived its time on Earth, and so we have to look for new planets to explore. I'm all for exploring new planets, and especially if we're gonna, for example, stop mining down mountains for minerals if those minerals are highly accessible in, on asteroids, for example, right? But I have a very different response to the moon. I mean, we need the moon. We, we may not need an asteroid. Who knows? Perhaps we do perhaps don't. but there's no science that shows us right now that, that we need Asteroid X. So if Asteroid X has a mineral that we need for all these smartphones, okay, perhaps we can go and mine that. But I have a little bit more nervousness around the idea of man in the moon with no concept by saying the moon is just up there doing nothing. The moon is not just up there doing nothing. It's saving us from being toast. So we have to really have more people at the conversation table around this. And it can't be that it's only a few scientists and a few policymakers. We, more, we need more people to be generally aware that this is as much as, as existential threat to them as as viruses and the virus fear is.
1: So speaking of bringing more folks to the table, what do you think would be the benefits of further inclusion of small island developing states into a wider technology and political environment?
0: I think that island certainly um, from a political sense, of course, in the United Nations, we have uh, Um, maybe 50-something small island states that have votes. And of course, it's one vote, one country. But of course, everybody knows that the big countries in the Security Council, more or less, decide what happens. That being the case, however, there are other things besides security and military issues that are of concern to us as a human species. We have a rule book around air traffic, we have rule rule books about maritime use, you have rule books around phone systems, rule books around insurance law, financial laws. So all of some of those things are worked out in different functional corporation areas, right? And so with climate being one of the big issues that is going to affect all of humanity, so much of the world's population lives on low-lying coastal zones. Louisiana is a case in point. There islands of the coast of Louisiana which are disappearing, right? But small island states, I think, and islands can be almost like a laboratory for thinking about some of the social change issues we have to work on, right? They can be a test bed for pilot projects around efficient resource and infrastructure management. In those islands where you still have a lot of indigenous people living, I think there's a lot of knowledge that we have not paid attention to. The Pacific region, a lot of indigenous knowledge exists as seafaring people of thousands of years. They were navigating the stars without instruments. So all of this knowledge is there that we still have to, say, learn from. Then many islands are hotbeds of biodiversity. So we have to... Stop seeing small island states as just being okay. A few people, six hundred million people. What is that in a in a country in a world with eight billion people? But it's six hundred million people in big ocean states, right? So small islands, big ocean, that have a lot of economic impact on the world because, of course, the ocean is the lungs of the world ocean is you know the way we trade recreation economics fish food medicine all of these things to think about so i think small islands by being brought into more technology conversations can be more connected if the small islands can have more science for example scientific support to look at how their plants are useful i'm not talking about what's happening now where you have scientists come, take this stuff, come back to the West, and then do all the research. I'm talking about creating those labs, those scientific labs on those islands, and making sure that the locals of these countries also are part of the way we are evolving and emerging as a species, and not this continual division of, okay, you are third world, so you need to stay where you are, and we are first world, therefore we will continue continue to oppress and continue to exploit. We're interdependent. None of us now grows our own food, makes our own cloth, builds our own transportation. system. And so if we can begin to see ourselves as related and relatable, I think we'll go a long way to kind of not needing so much war machinery, for example.
2: You know, Dr. Nelson, I think that brings up some interesting points because we have a wide range of listeners, really, you know, from military members and academics and students, um, but also civilians and international folks as well. Um, And so as you talk about some of these interesting topics that we really, really don't usually broach on on this podcast, which is um, pretty intriguing to our audience, what do you think they need to be most aware of when they start thinking about the future?
0: For me, I like to use the concept of the future as shared space, right? The future is not defined by one person. Most of us believe that because we have a vision of our future, our ideal future, that that is going to be the future, right? And so we're then caught off guard because we're not thinking about how our vision of the future impinges or impacts negatively. On the person next to us, and then we have a conflict. So, I have this idea: I'm going to build this uh, beautiful fence, right? And I'm just going to build this beautiful fence, not thinking about the fact that when when I build my fence, the way the hill slopes on my neighbor's yard might create, um, let's say, a block to the water drainage, next thing you know, where there was a water flow free flow and freely, there's you now a big puddle of water rather that now breeds mosquitoes in that person's yard. So now I've created a person for a conflict. So, so the neighbor's gonna come and say, you should have built a hole for the water to come through and you did not get the permit and then you, know, you have a conflict, right? So take that from a neighborly household in suburban anywhere to, um, to countries, to nations, right? And we see that if we don't consider the future as shared space, if we don't take into account different stories of the future from different perspectives, then we're going to find ourselves continually creating conflict. We are in the age of the Anthropocene, right? We know that we as humans have the capacity to destroy mountains if we so choose, right? So we have to be different we have to think carefully about what is the future we want in terms of the planet so we need to let go of this black and white we have seen in the world there's so much other colors in the world we have been too much into winners and losers and especially i would think western culture the winner quote unquote in some instances in terms of policy wars or resource wars also loses in the long run, because all you do, you you create resentment, hatred, and the conditions for a a future fight. So I would like us to think about the sharing economy, to rethink the way that we want to go forward, recognizing that the benefits of the capitalist system have taken us this far, but we're now on the precipice of a disaster. So a new form of collaboration has to come into play so that wealth is more evenly spread among more people so we don't have these extremes of poverty that create resentment and are and, and breeding grounds for conflict.
2: No, absolutely. Fantastic insights. And again, um, a very unique perspective from what we always have. And I think that one of the most interesting things you've done is, is this idea of expressing foresight uh, and futurism through art. So can you tell us um, about your show and, and how you think art relates to the future?
0: I got into this whole whole space thing because I really was trying to figure out how to tell the story of the future of humanity like Circle 3000, right? I'm like, okay, if we're on this brink of disaster, then by the year 3000, there'll be new stories being told of how we got there because we will still be telling stories. So that's my first presumption, right? I said, but how do we get to that? We have to see ourselves as one species, one planet, one human family. And the only place we can do that is from being in space. So I basically had to travel to space and I decided that I would put myself on the moon. So my story is set on the moon in 2030 and it is my life as the first Jamaican on the moon. And it's basically an adventure tale. And it it talks about the things I did to create, quote unquote, the Caribbean Space Society. But of course, when I first wrote the story, I had no intention of creating a Caribbean Space Society. So in fact, my story predates the things I did. In fact, I would say my story actually is serving as a pull factor for me to do the things I'm doing. Because whenever I see something happen, that was in my story, which I wrote in 2016 is happening now. I'm like, wait a minute, this is really happening. i got to do something about it. And so I then do the thing that in the story, I thought I would do something like that. It's not exactly the same thing, but, and so it's fun for me. I got to be the first Jamaican holograph (laughs) because I got to perform it at the Arizona State University Festival of the Future. And so I like to think that my love of of theater can now be expressed through future theater. And so all the, let's say, all the skill I developed, writing plays, performing in plays, directing plays, I'm now using to create theater about the future.
2: You know, this has been such an interesting conversation and we could probably go on for about three more hours at least. Um, but Matt's going to transition to really what we call our rapid-fire questions. Um, but this is uh, take your time, and and this is questions that we ask of all our guests. So we'll uh, transition over to that.
1: So the first question that that we're going to ask is, what's a technology or trend that keeps you up at night?
0: When I think about drones, I get personally very uncomfortable. It's a very dangerous idea. I think. The a is, well, you know, people can use drones to deliver medicines and those things. I understand that. But the the potential for drones to be misused, in my head, I can picture it so clearly. I can construct the story so clearly that I terrify myself, right? So drones and the conversation about making them highly available and public, for me, is a trend that's keeping me up at night.
1: So you've already told us that you've been represented as a hologram. So you can't use that for this next question. But what's something about you that most people might not know?
0: Most people would not know that I am a playwright, that I had a hit play um, in Jamaica. It ran for three months. Um, And the play also ran in Barbados for a month. So most people wouldn't know that.
1: So that's very cool. Art seems to be a very impactful part of your life. Um, So that leads us to our final question here. What's your favorite movie?
0: I really can't think of a favorite movie because I, although I love the idea of movies, my friend thinks I am ridiculous because before I go see a movie, I have to find out what happened, how is it going to end. If you don't tell me how it ends, I'm not going to go. Because when I go to see a movie, I'm totally immersed in the movie. If it has a scary end, I get really terrified, and I get depressed for days about it. the end. So, but if I had to pick a favorite, I would say from my childhood, it would probably be um, To Sir With Love with Sir Sidney Poitier, because I think it was the first time I was seeing a black man in that role, and it was so exciting and he was handsome. So that was, you know, at eight-year-old, you get getting thrill of handsome men. And then at, um, as an adult, I would say in the genre of science fiction, I really am a Star Trek fan. You know, so proud to be one of the Star Trek movies, I can't say which one. And in the other, my most recent movie I fell in love with was Hidden Figures. That was a very important movie for me because it actually clarified this vision I have of really using stories to tell history and also hopefully tell the future.
1: Very cool. Very good answers. I think I I think that went pretty well, despite being someone who doesn't watch movies.
0: No, I'm serious. My friends think I'm I'm ridiculous. I don't... I used to read Dean Coons, right? I liked him a lot. The only one I can read now is the odd books because at least the odd always lives at the end, right? I bought one recently saying, okay, maybe I can live with this one because I read the back before I bought it, right? So I know the person's going to live. But in the middle of it, it was just too terrifying. I was like, what am I doing? My brain doesn't know it's not real. I'm stressing myself out. Oh, I'm, I'm reading and I'm shaking because I'm totally immersed in the story world. And so the same thing with film. So it has to end good. It has to be a happy film. It has to be like a musical. Everybody, because I'm crying in the sad parts. I'm laughing out loud in the laughing parts. So I only I have my movie going has to be very circumspect.
2: And Dr. Nelson is into spoilers. So just so you know, uh, Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. So... <laughs> We'll just we'll just throw it out there. So now you can go watch the Empire Strikes Back.
1: I have to say I find this fascinating as someone who works in the future where it is complete uncertainty that it's the uncertainty of, of, of books and movies that cause that emotion from you. I don't I don't know how you do your job. That's amazing.
0: But you know why? I think because as a change maker, I am very much focused on um, aspirational futures and I believe that I have the power to make a shift. And so if I am afraid of something, I try and do something about it. Can I learn something? Can I get person A to talk to person B? So that's kind of my personality. So it's not that, it's, I don't let my fear of things stop me. Courage for me is to do things in the face of fear. It's not that I'm not afraid, but it's that I, I have the courage to do it even though I'm afraid.
1: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. In the books and movies, you're, you're powerless to make any kind of change, it's out of your control, but in the future you have a choice um, of how you want to react to it.
0: Exactly, how oh, you react to this, all oh, you can do how you how you react, you can't change other people, but you can change how you react. So I try to live my life in that way.
1: That's exactly right. So where can people follow you? Where can people see your work? How could people get in touch with you?
0: I can be found on LinkedIn at Dr. Claire A. Nelson. that's the easiest way to find me if, if you don't know me. And I also have a website, Thefuturesforum.org. That is thefutures, F U T U R E S, forum, F O R U M.org.
1: That's fantastic. Well, this was uh, an eye opening conversation. It was wonderful. We thank you for coming on and we thank you for sharing your insights with us.
0: Thank you for having me. Now I'm officially a math scientist.
1: There you go. Now you can tell your mom. <laughs> it worked. <laughs>
0: thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Claire Nelson, founder and chief ideation leader of the Futures Forum. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci. And don't forget to subscribe to our blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.